This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. For over 40 years, Louis Cinco has worked as a photojournalist, making some of the most memorable images during that time. He has been a part of two Pulitzer Prize winning teams at the Los Angeles Times for coverage of the Northridge earthquake and the 2004 California fires. From war-torn countries, riots, fires, high school football games, and Coachella, Lewis has made it all look easy and beautiful at the same time. We have like the last fun jobs in the world, right? I mean, if you don't pigeon yourself, pigeonhole yourself into a certain beat, and you just like want to explore the world, what better way to do it than an LA Times photographer? One day, and this happened to me, you can be in a war in Libya, and then three days after you get back from that, they're saying, oh, by the way, you're credentialed for Coachella, right? It's surreal almost, but damn, you know, if you really look back at it, it was good. It was interesting. It was fun. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from college coaches, business owners, and professional soccer player, Christine Birkenrow. I just knew somehow it was going to work out. You know, through all the struggle, I mean, I don't know how, like looking back, I think I just had this like undeniable, undeniable belief in myself that the universe has a purpose for me. And the like, I'm meant to play soccer. I will succeed at this. Like it wasn't even a question through, I mean, I could have been, you know, under the most heavy influence of any drug. And I still would tell you like, no, I'm, I'm going to play soccer. Like my dreams will come true. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break from my sponsor before diving into my conversation with Louis Cinco. I have one of the people I have been trying to get for a very long time in front of me. Louis, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> You're more than fine. <laughs> You're brilliant. Oh, God. I please. have admired you for a very long time. Hmm. You are like one of the great... I'm going to say this, and, and please either don't get mad or embarrassed, but I think you're the most underrated photographer working. You are so damn good, you don't get enough accolades. Hmm. Well, i my the, share. <laughs> I but, know that. You need more. Well, you know what? I thought the same of you, Matt. Oh. When I saw you at games, right? Your specialty was sports. I was like, man, I hope I get a Matt Brown today. <laughs> no, right? Please. No, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. It's like, you know, you talk about like developing over the years. It's like, yeah, uh, you can really develop very well when you're working with colleagues and even people that work for the quote unquote um, competition are very skilled. You can't help but learn, right? You just look at their pictures, you watch them a little bit, how they operate, and maybe you follow some of those things or tweak them, tweak them the way you want to yeah. You want to do it. Those were good times when there were more of us shooting together. Right. Right? right. When we're asses to elbows on a sideline, asses to elbows in a photo well. Right. I haven't been there in a while, but it looks pretty sparse. Yeah, it's pretty sparse, and sometimes it seems like we're just kind of like window dressing for the big show, right? <laughs> right. It's like, oh, we got to get some photographers over there to make it look authentic or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, it's not like it used to be. I don't My know. research on you has been the most fun and most difficult. There's like little pieces 
about you. And then there are these like huge gaps of mystery that I want to walk through. So tell me, what was it like growing up and being born in the Philippines? Oh, actually, you know, I have to say we were from, I was from a fairly privileged background compared to a lot of people in the Philippines. Uh, my grandfather was kind of an important muckety-muck. He was a constitutional lawyer. And so he was always being consulted about, you know, matters of government. So um, it was a strange time. I mean, I went to a Catholic school, and it was the Christian brothers, LaSalle. They're the guys that make the wine or used to make the wine. But I just, you know, school was good, but it was kind of unpleasant in that from what I remember the most is um, the priests were really into corporal punishment <laughs> and doing it like spanking you or swatting you in front of the class. And so I guess I learned pretty quickly because I did not want to be like hit and humiliated. But that's one of the lasting things. But I also remember like growing up on when I wasn't in school in Manila or before I went there, hanging out a lot with my dad in this outer island, and it was beautiful. I mean, we we fished, we swam. It was just, it was paradise, really. It sounds like it. Yeah, it was nice at the time. And, you know, this was in the 1960s. The country was full of promise. I mean, the future looked very bright. And Did you realize that even as a child, like, you were living in such a wonderful place? Yes, I mean, you know, like I said, the tradition there was to send your kids to Catholic school in Manila because that's where people with some money, some families with money and influence, that's what they did so that you could build your network after that. But I remember going to Manila like six years old from my island and went to La Salle and they gave me this exam and it was so incredibly easy. It's like two plus two equals what? And I wrote down all the wrong answers because like, I don't want to leave my island. I don't want to <laughs> leave my dad, right? I don't want to live with my grandparents. And least of all, I don't want to be spanked in front of a whole classroom. So uh, yeah, it was great. It was wow. great at that time. Wow. I mean, our town at that time was... Uh, there's always been an oceanfront boulevard, and at that time there were a lot of really cool homes there, like Spanish style. Uh, you know, um, I'm losing the word here. Um, uh, Art Deco, Philippine okay. Art Deco, and you go there now. The town has grown tremendously, and the Seaside Boulevard now is like restaurants and hotels and uh, bars, and some of them are actually housed in these old stately homes but everywhere in the world is changing and i don't know i mean we talked about age earlier and sometimes i think that like wow this did not change for the better three mcdonald's two starbucks and a bunch of 7-elevens in this town isn't doing it much good right, right? did you as a child did you notice the european influence that had obviously maybe been there before you were born Oh, yeah. I mean, they still remain. The Spanish churches on my island of Negros, is, there's dozens of them. And they're all from like the, what, 16th century? Uh, they're old. Wow. Right? They're limestone. A lot of them are covered in, um, 
and mildew and mold, right? Because it's very wet there. But here's what I mean. Like the downtown cathedral in Dumaguete City, where I'm from, is where my parents got married. And it used to be this really cool old building with like stuff growing out of it, plants and things like that. Well, they renovated it like maybe 10 years ago. And damn, if it doesn't look like a freaking Taco Bell. Oh. Right? So progress sometimes is like, yeah, you know, the moldy look was better, actually. <laughs> Who knew? Right. So, so what then drove your father to say, hey, guys, let's move? Well, you know, when he married my mom, my mom was is an incredibly smart person. Like, she was a Fulbright scholar. Uh, people of Philippine history might know the Thomasites. And that sounds very religious, but it was a public school system set up by the United States in the Philippines when um, shortly after uh, the Philippines was ceded to the United States and, and as a result of the Spanish-American War, the U.S. got the Philippines, Cuba, and Puerto Rico out of the deal. And then as now, this was around 1898, 1900, then as now, the proximity of the Philippines to China is a, uh, a plus. It's a big plus. So um, anyway, I forgot your question. Well, no, what, just when did dad decide he wanted Oh, to? yeah. So anyway, he was working there for my grandfather, who actually was the, how do I put this delicately? Oh, yeah, the bastard child of a Spanish priest. <laughs> So, anyway, he started a school, which, um, 73 years ago, which um, mainly um, wasn't for the elite. It was more for, like, the people of the province and the city. Uh, and it remains so to this day, even though we provide a really good education. And uh, my dad opened, a, basically established the place. And then, I don't know, he met my mom there. Because she was a teacher, and she was always very smart and ambitious, and she always wanted to go study in the United States. So she got a Fulbright scholarship, and she came in the mid-60s, early 60s, to Michigan and got her master's and her Ph.D. at Michigan State. And I don't know, around 1968-ish, uh, she had come home for a couple of years, and, you know, I missed her a lot, and that's why I didn't want to go live with my grandparents. But um, she came home and for a couple of years, but then she had to go back to Michigan to defend her thesis, right? Wow. So at that time, my dad was like, you know what, let's just give it a try, right? I mean, my dad was very dedicated to my mom. Uh, he let her do whatever she wanted, and her thing was like learning. She wanted to learn. A lot. So anyway, so we moved to the United States or temporarily migrated to the United States, supposedly in 1968, because my dad decided to go get his MBA while my mom defended her thesis. So um, that's why he decided to go to the United States, mainly because um, he was madly in love with my mom and whatever she wanted. He was going to go right. for how did he flip a coin and find Washington? Oh, you know, um, what happened was, okay, so about two years later, three years later, uh, no, it was two years because we came in late 1968. 
but in 1971, he completed his MBA, and we were ready to go back to the Philippines, and Ferdinand Marcos, who eventually became a, the dictator of the Philippines for almost two decades, declared martial law. And so my dad was like, hmm, maybe it's not a good time to go home this very minute. So um, my mom's um, academic advisor at Michigan State said, hey, you know, there's this Catholic school in Olympia, Washington that needs a business manager and a dean of students. So they went and checked it out and they came back to Michigan and they said, Washington is so beautiful. It <laughs> rains a lot, but I think we're moving there. We think we're moving there. So that's how we ended up in Washington, which was great by me. You get used to the rain after a while. but Yeah, that was nothing to you, right? Because right. it rains so much in the Philippines. Oh, yeah, it rains a lot. But, I mean, it's not as cold in the Philippines, obviously, but it was fine. I mean, it was a great place to grow up. Yeah, I mean, you're what, 11, 12 at this point? Yes. Yeah. Right around there. So it was great. Yeah, that must have been the time of your life. Right, and then you fast forward from that, and martial law did not end for many, many years. And then Marcos eventually became the dictator. And by that time, me and my brother were well into high school. And my parents were like, huh, do we uproot the kids again? So that's how we ended up like staying. And we all got our citizenship. And Right, because at that point, you don't know what you're going back to. Right, and uh, right. I mean, Absolutely. You know your life's good now. You right. can go back to the Philippines, and it's not what it was when you guys yeah, left. Yeah, I was... mean, he's destroyed that place. Right. I mean, it's not, like I said earlier, when we left... The country was full of promise, right? By the time I actually went back to visit for the first time around 1978, it wasn't very promising at all. Did you feel like he had choked the life out of the country? There was just tremendously more poverty. Oh. And that's all, never a good sign. Right. So yeah, that was it. It was just, it just didn't seem like the poverty was so overwhelming in the 60s yeah now your father was an amateur photographer right <coughs> he, he enjoyed taking pictures yeah he did he really did and he always had some cool cameras like he had those early polaroids where you would like wipe down the the, <laughs> the paper and the the, the um, image would magically appear and he was always a canon guy and he bought me an instamatic i think it was my eighth birthday so yeah he was a he was a uh, an enthusiast. And do you think that was kind of an impression put upon you? Like, oh, I, I enjoy this. Well, I didn't take it up until, I don't know, I was 16 or 17 because um, I don't know why. I was just a kid and didn't want to haul a camera around, I guess. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you're riding your bike and skateboarding right. and chasing girls. Why do you want a camera for? Right, right. Yeah, so when you, so, when you did start picking it up... Uh, was it natural? Did it feel comfortable to you? Or was it a bit of yeah, work? Yeah, I think another thing that I was really blessed with growing up is my parents were very uh, literate. And they had every magazine you could possibly imagine. 
like uh, Life, of course, and Time, and Newsweek, and National Geographic, the Smithsonian, Sunset. You just go on and on and on. Wow, they, like the gold standards of magazines. They, were they loved reading, and I loved reading too, but what really got me, what really influenced me in the whole thing is the combination of my dad being a photographer and just looking at Life magazine every week. It was stunning. Like, the work was incredibly great. And I don't know if America really realizes how much it misses a magazine or a publication like Life. I mean, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. People have no clue that quality that was put out by that magazine. Some of the great photographers made some of the most life-changing images in that magazine. It was stunning. Right, I remember seeing like a double truck, I believe, or very large publica- uh, publish, uh, published photo of Nick Utz's Napalm Girl mm-hmm. in life. And I was uh, shocked as like a, what, eight-year-old kid. I was like, why is that girl naked and running down the road and crying? And it was just powerful. When you finally read the caption, it's like, Wait a minute, I thought we were the good guys, right? Right. So it really changed my life in the in having all these publications around that had a variety of photography. Sports Illustrated, we got that. Uh, we got Sport for a while, you remember right? Sport? Right, Sport Magazine. Right, and uh, the photography was excellent. Yeah, it was beautiful. Excellent. I mean, even way back in the 60s and 70s, it was excellent. Yeah, and it so, was a challenge to make those pictures right, back then. Right, like, And they were tacticians to figure out how to make these crude lenses right. pull in right. an image. Oh, unbelievable. Well, you know what? If I'd been in Dallas when Oswald got like gunned down by Jack Ruby, I would have missed the shot because it was probably <laughs> like a speed graphic with that big old flash bulb, uh-huh. and you had one chance... <laughs> So I would have been like, oh, missed it. I don't have a ball bin or I have dark slides not pulled. Right. I know. It's amazing to think. Right. Like how quickly that photo had to be made. Right. It was, and it was like one chance. One shot. Right. You didn't have 20 frames a second mirrorless camera. Right. (laughs) With a full car. And then you had to make sure you didn't screw up the exposure. What if you were just shooting something else and you had your dial to F8, not 32 or vice versa, and then ruin the film. Like there's so many things that could have gone terribly wrong. Right. There was no TV mode on the camera then. (laughs) Like just set a shutter speed. Everything else was taken care of. Right. So Photographers were were truly pros back then to make those images and life had them all. Right. Life had them all. National Geographic was terrific. It's like... I miss these publications a lot. And like I said, I don't know if the world realizes how much it should be missing these and trying to revive it in some form or another. I remember as a child, this sounds weird to say, would would be excited to go to the dentist or the doctor's office because they would have the National Geographic. You'd see that yellow outline underneath a couple of other magazines and you knew like, ooh, 
Right. Maybe it's a scripture I haven't seen, and you snatch it up and want to look at it, and right. you'd be amazed at these photos right. underwater, or polar bears, or some zebra, and it'd be remote shot from tree eye level. I mean, it was just beautiful images right. being made. Right, beautiful, absolutely. And also, like talking about technical skill, I think a lot of the stuff was shot on slides, right? Yes. So the exposure had to be pretty right on. Two and a so, quarter, four by five. A right. lot of those guys then later got into the 35. Right. Holy crap. Right. Imagine That's, being on the out there in the middle of the Sierra in Africa shooting two and a quarter slide film. Right. Trying to get that rhino sharp. Right. <laughs> charging you. Right. Yeah, it was a lot harder back then. And even when you and I got into it, there were still some challenges to it, right? Even though light we had meter. better equipment, right? The light meter and setting up the lights and right and shooting uh, prep football in really dark fields. Really right? dark like, fields that had even darker end zones. Right, and, <laughs> and the team, the home team always wore black. <laughs> Right. Exactly. It was like, wow, you guys are not making this easy at all. Yeah. So. Thanks, Tustin or Servite <laughs> or San, San Pedro San High. San Pedro High. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, wow, man. How did they even see? Like, I lost the ball a lot back <laughs> in the day, right? Where'd the ball go? Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, high school games should be played at three o'clock, and that's it. Right. Done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I agree with you there. So where did you start to figure out maybe you were falling in love with photography to maybe it become maybe a career? Oh, I think in college. Started taking, you know, So you classes. stayed home, went to Washington. You're yeah, I went to Washington. You're a Husky. Yeah. You Didn't want to go Coug, huh? You wanted to go Husky. No, you know what, Ashley? <laughs> I was uh, having a lot of trouble with my parents when I was 18. These and parents, these parents sound magical, your parents. Oh. They're providing you magazines. And right, <laughs> but here's the thing. It was mainly my dad. My mom was very open-minded, but my dad was always in the back of his mind thinking that we'd go back to the Philippines, right? Mm -hmm. Even when we were, like, already at college. So he was quite old-fashioned in that way, right? Like, just the way his standards of, like, how we behaved or stuff we thought stuff we said anyway as a teenager we butted heads and uh to this day i feel bad about it because like i said they're between the ages of like zero and six years old i was inseparable from my dad when my mom went to uh to study abroad but um i well, went to washington state for a year because it was the farthest you could get <laughs> in washington state from my parents but you know what? I quickly realized that, like, I'd probably be an alcoholic if I stayed there. I mean, I'm sorry to all you cougs out there, but you know what I mean. The drinking age in Idaho was, like, 15 or something <laughs> at the time. So, anyway, I went there, but a winter in the Palouse will oh. change your mind about your parents. Yeah. Right? So then I transferred to UW. But I didn't go live with my parents or anything, but at least I was... In town. In civilization. Yeah. Right? Have you been to Pullman, yes. right? I've been it's to like, Pullman. <sighs> right. It's in the middle of freaking nowhere. Nowhere. Right. Yeah, it's brutal. So, And yeah. it's a college town. There's nothing else. When school's out, there's 3,000 people. When school's right. there, there's 33,000. Right. 
Oof. So anyway, and then if you went to Spokane at the time, Spokane was like a big Pullman. Right? <laughs> big Pullman. <laughs> right. And it was just nowhere. I mean, I'm sorry. Like I say, Wazoo's great school and everything, but it was just absolutely in the middle of freaking nowhere. And it got cold. It was brutal in the winter. And that, you know, there was the saying there, um, it was off of a Jimmy Buffett song about let's get drunk and, right? Yeah. So that was it. That's my whole <laughs> summation of Washington State University. I'm glad you don't work for the administration office for the coups. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll be Washington there. State, let's get drunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway. So you, so... At Washington, though, uh, you're starting to find yourself interested in photography, taking courses. Professors were enlightening you with the powers yeah. of the camera. Well, this is where me and my dad butted heads. My dad, I should have listened to him. He said, you should be an economist, right? So I'm sitting there in economy 201 or whatever, price theory, and everything is under assumptions. Like, let's assume... The consumer, to, and I was just, needless to say, by midway through the quarter, I was so far behind, right? Like, I don't get this shit at all. So I was a writer, and I was taking photographs, I was, and I thought, you know what? I'm transferring to the School of Communications. So I went there and then, you know, discovered the school paper and then got internships in suburbs of Seattle that are now, like, not so rural anymore. So yeah, I just kind of started liking it. I was a, an intern for the Sammamish Valley News doing sports. So I had to report and take photographs. It was kind of hard. Wow. But um, it was a small paper. It was like sure. three times a week or something. Right? Did you At that point, did you enjoy writing more than photography or was it? I liked them both, but um, you know, and then after I got out of college, I ended up coming down to LA because, uh, you know, I was looking for jobs up there, and the Seattle Times at the time was one of the greatest photo newspapers ever, and none of those photographers were going to go anywhere for the next few years. And so I met an editor, and he said, well, you know, I've heard there's an opening out in Moses Lake. And I'm like, oh, hell no. <laughs> Thank you. But um, I grew up in Olympia. That's small enough for me, right? So a friend of mine who was an engineer, he graduated from MIT and came here, and this was in the mid-'80s, and uh, he said he, you know, at that time, if you went down to LAX, you would see, like, planes disgorging, like, engineering graduates looking for defense industry jobs. So it was 1984, and my friend said, you wouldn't believe how much it's booming in L.A., what year is this? 84. Okay, it was so right 84. before the Olympics, right? Oh, right, okay. So, and then, you know, it was... Uh, it was exploding. It was doing very well. So I came down here, and I was broke, and I basically got a job for just a year with this agricultural business newspaper just to get some money. Uh, but I traveled every, you know, the whole state from like Imperial Valley up to like Salinas, wherever they were growing produce. But then after that, I transitioned to a community newspaper in downtown LA, a Filipino American one. 
And at that time, like I say it was the mid-80s, that's when the dictatorship of Marcos was about ready to fall. It was teetering. And um, I went to work for this newspaper. A lot of it was mainly about Philippine politics, but they hired me because I was young at the time. I was in my mid-20s. And they needed to reach more of, like, the Filipino-American youth, like people who were graduating for college or going into college. So I was pretty much the guy writing and taking photographs of all the community news. Wow. I didn't. I didn't really know. I, I didn't really. I knew about Philippine political situation just from absorbing it in that environment. But I was not writing about that. I was doing mainly like what's happening with Filipino Americans here in LA. Wow. So, and then after that, I uh, what a crazy time though because you know watching the Philippines where you came from you right. know, imploding like you right, know right right. People, I mean, and people forget about that. That was a big deal for oh, us. Oh, it was a big deal. And that's why it's just stunning that 30 years later, his son is now the president of the Philippines <laughs> again, right? It's like... and this, Did you not learn anything? Well, here's the thing, and we'll probably go into this more later, but I understand from stuff I've read and my experience there, because I ended up like covering it for a couple of days, just waiting in case anything blew up, right? But... Um, you know, the traditional media in the Philippines, the newspapers and a lot of the TV stations were saying, hey, uh, let, us, let us remind you about what happened under the Marcoses. So, you know, but the Marcoses still with their wealth bought like uh, a lot of people to do TikTok videos for them. And the election was uh, pretty much decided on social media. And that's, we were talking earlier off mic about, like, where's the future going? I mean, I had a weird moment while covering that election. I was thinking, um, I guess I don't really matter anymore, and neither does the L.A. Times or even the New York Times. It's like everybody under 20 is getting their news from social media. And so it's... This happened, what, like a month ago, and it's really kind of making me question about, like, what is the future, not just of American journalism and photojournalism, what is the future of democracy? Because, I'm sorry, people, you got to read. Right, and well, it worries you about global journalism. Right, the that's pow- what I'm saying. Right, the, the, pow- the entire, right. all democracies around the world, if you don't have a working, functioning press, you're screwed. Yeah, and you got and and then you have to realize who is running TikTok, right? It's the Chinese, and they got to be laughing their ass off. They're going, people don't listen and read their history. They're being fooled by this TikTok. We could bring it right back again. We got another, you know, could be dictator running the place. Right. I mean, used in a used in properly or not properly, but in certain ways, it is very powerful. I mean, the Arab Spring was pretty much driven by Facebook, right? Right. And um, you remember a couple of years ago when uh, Trump had a uh, live event and all these TikTokers, I think it was TikTokers, like flooded the website so that nobody could get in and then, you know, sent RSVPs and they were not going. And so the event... I mean, it's really powerful, whatever your politics are. Yeah. If you know how to use social media, uh, yikes, you could probably be 
king right. of the world. Well, there's a whole documentary on how uh, President Obama used it during his 08 to 012 both campaigns in his favor where both McCain and the other numbnuts uh, didn't have a clue how to run it. Right. They had no idea. Right. And his team was like, we've got this thing. We're going to run it. Boom. Right. And it worked for him. You have right. to understand the power of that technology. Right. But on the other end of it, it's like <laughs> what happened in Myanmar and Burma mm -hmm. when they slaughtered and drove, ethnic cleansed the country of Muslims, right? But, you know, however you feel about Muslims, I don't think it's a good idea to no. go on Facebook and go, hey, let's go to this village and wipe them out. Yeah. Right. I, it's just, it's to me, it's just baffling. Like I say, it sways elections. It starts liberations. It foments genocide. And I, do you think someone like TikTok has a responsibility then to be like, hey, we cannot, we can't have this on the platform? Well, you know, here's the thing is they're doing that. They did that to Trump, right, on Twitter. I mean, and people are getting banned. And I'm reading a lot of stuff that, like, if you have a counter narrative to what's going on, Twitter will will suspend you for a while or outright ban you. And I have never been one to say that, like, that guy's saying some stupid crap, but I don't want, you know, let's ban him from saying it or her right. saying it. Yeah. I am very uh, about like open and free speech. I think where it comes down to it is like we have to be informed people and know when something is BS, right? You can't just go to social media and go, everything here is the absolute <laughs> truth, yeah. right? Because maybe point. 1% of it is. Yeah. So I put it more on individuals like you and me to be so much better informed than we are that we're just banning people from saying stuff. Stupid stuff. Right. But but sometimes I say stupid stuff. Right. Right. All the time. Right. We always say dumb stuff. Right. And even on social media. And I get called on it, but I don't want to be banned. Right. You know, there's a Bob Marley lyric, uh, truth is an offense, but not a sin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let people talk. I'm sorry. Yeah. But you got to be smart enough to know when someone's a major grade BSer. Yeah. And someone that like knows what they're talking about. Right. And if they want to sound like a village idiot, fine, let right. them be. But that doesn't mean closing them off to Right. I do not believe in censorship in any form. Yeah, it's the really. most... Really, I mean, even if it's the most vile thing, I'm going to look into it more than what this person or that person or this organization says. I'm going to look into it a little bit more, especially if it's really provocative. Right, absolutely. So in those times for you late 80s early 90s how are you doing like if you're 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 not surrounded by a lot of other photographers or a newsroom full of people that are kind of shaping your process or making you you know judge what photos worked for you or not how are you getting better at that time early in your career um you know it was difficult some of the situations that were that I took on, like the agricultural newspaper. I didn't know squat about agriculture, but I learned. 
and learn to report about it. And then at the small daily, or no, at the um, Philippine American News, I mean, that was really a commitment because I think I left there and they still owed me like three months salary. But for me at the time, it was important, right? The Filipino American community it was, was full of people like me who their parents were intentionally wanting to go back, but for one reason or another, never did. And so they were neither fish nor fowl, and I could really relate to that. And um, and then I went to a daily newspaper where they took advantage of my ability to write and take photographs to be the staff writer photographer, but the managing editor there was not very imaginative, and he thought my perfect beat would be people's weird Mickey Mouse collections, right? So that's when I transitioned mainly into photography because I'm like, oh my God, they're going to make me do this crap because I can write, right? Like all of a sudden I became the guy to do the man, the weekly man on the street thing, like a mugshot and a mm -hmm. quote. And it was like, oh my God. So uh, I don't know, a year into it, it was with a Copley newspaper and they have these internal editorial awards and I won two things right away, news and portrait. And I just went to the managing editor and said, look, I just really want to be a photographer. And I don't think he really understood why. <laughs> I didn't want to tell him, dude, I hate the shit you're giving to me. And you're pigeonholing me in a very, like, very narrow and inane corner of the universe. So. Yeah, I want to be able yeah. to do one great. Not, right. Or, not be miserable doing two. Well, I think that, you know, like I'm in a situation now at the only times where they're asking photographers to write more and, and, and along with the social media thing to try to personalize it a little bit. So I've been doing that lately, right? And um, it's kind of fun sometimes to write. So like I said, if the managing editor and had the vision and at that time if I had the experience to know what was really interesting and what was not that reporter photographer thing might have worked out but it didn't so that's how I transitioned into photography mainly. thank goodness right and, and uh, <laughs> uh, again and then from there it was pretty much learning from everybody that I worked with who did um, you absorb from well the first guy at uh Phil, at um, the San Pedro News Pilot Randy Mudrick he was this older guy and uh he just gave me a bunch of tips on stuff right what to do like simple portraiture and things like that and then later like i said just working with the immense amount of talent in the LA Times photo department it's like you it was a it was a, an environment that was incredible and you couldn't help but learn. And I wish kids 40 years younger than me would have that experience. I mean, think about it, Matt. We have, like, the last fun jobs in the world, oh. right? I mean, if you don't pigeon yourself, pigeonhole yourself into a certain beat and you just, like, want to explore the world, what better way to do it than an L.A. Times photographer, one day, and this happened to me, you can be in a war in Libya, and then three days after you get back from that, they're saying, oh, by the way, you're credentialed for Coachella, right? It's surreal almost, but damn, 
you know, if you really look back at it, it was good. It was interesting. It was fun. Yeah, I mean, we have a job where our avenues are open to all kinds of stuff. Right. Where, right. yeah, you could be at Coachella, you could be right. covering a Lakers game, then you're off to go overseas on a project. Right. I mean, it's it, right. there's nothing like that. Even earlier, when I was a freelancer, when I started out at the LA Times, um, they would send the freelancers to the, do the grunt work, right? Right, isn't that funny? Like, right. you were getting great work because they were like, oh, it's grunt work. Right. Right, like the Bolshoi ballet, nobody wants to shoot ballet, or even like the late night club gigs in Hollywood. It was like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever, right? And I'm taking pictures. What were some of those great gigs back then? Oh, God, back in the day, there's this one guy that, I don't know, he had these go-go dancers stationed everywhere, like on these pedestals. Uh, I remember a lipstick lesbian club that was kind of weirdly fun and this uh, early eight, uh, early nineties. Yes. Yeah. Right. And we had a reporter, and her whole thing was the club beat. So and it was big back then. Oh, it was big. Sunset and, Melrose right. Hollywood place was popping. Right. I remember going to a place, the Roxbury. Remember mm -hmm. that place and Viper Room. Yeah, right. right. The sunset. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun. I, I, you know, I remember uh, Johnny Cash. You could one night you'd be shooting Johnny Cash at like uh, a just a crappy little lounge, right. and then there'd be Miles Davis, and then there'd be some like upstart band that you never heard of that right. turns out to be Pearl Jam a year right. later. Like it was just so different. Right. It, it was, was absolutely great. It was great. It was absolutely great. Yeah. How did you handle those freelancing years with the times? Were you just taking as much as you could and just oh, yeah. bury yourself in it? Right. I remember there were no restrictions on how much you worked. None whatsoever. Right? So. And did uh, you crave it? Did you just take it all? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, about that time, I was going through a divorce, and so I was, I was into work, right? So not to think about, overthink stuff. And I remember there was this freelancer, Carlos Puma, and we had a bet. It's like, who's going to work the most? I dropped out at like 25 days in a row, and Carlos Puma kept going, and I think he finished up at around 35 so, yeah, we could work whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. And it was great, crazy. And the great thing is there was that much work. Oh, God. At the time, the L.A. Times had all of these suburban editions, or not editions, but inserts. And right. There was the Orange County edition. The Valley, the the Valley County, Ventura. San Ventura, San right. Diego. Right. It was expansive. And they were so, yeah, you could bounce around between these editions. Like, I remember Friday nights down in Orange County, and I think this is how I met you at one point. Mm -hmm. It's like they hired like 12 freelancers and covered every prep game on Friday night. And then the next day they had an entire section right. on the prep sports, the, the football. Right, and it was huge. Right, it was a lot of pages. Yeah. It was a lot of pages. It was a lot of teams. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is the sad part of this whole thing is like, it's not what it was, Matt. I mean, and like I said, I feel bad that no kids can follow in these footsteps and have this great life experience, good and bad. 
I, I, it's funny. I enjoyed shooting those prep games because it made me better. Right. It because, was a challenge. Right. Because pre-daylight savings, I knew if I had a game in September, I can get some still really nice sun. Games right. at seven. So you get there early and you start to think, okay, what feature photo can I make? Right. Oh, I can get a sunset. I get the band. I get someone practicing. I get the coin toss. I got a little bit of light. Just trying right. to find a field that had something that wasn't blocking maybe the sun in the west. Like it made you think. Right. Now we walk into the Rose Bowl and you go, okay, this is it. Right. I'm limited. I got tight end zones. I can right. only shoot between the 25 and the 25. There's crap everywhere. But in those prep games, whatever you wanted. Right. Right. The best and images could be made. Right. And I agree with you. It, it forced you to become better. It forced you. Yeah. Right. Because it was hard in those dark stadiums. And like I said, the black uniforms, it was, it was difficult. The film? And, right. The film. I remember going back to the lab. And I don't know if you know, remember Rod Boren? Mm-hmm. I was like just going over the nags, going, holy crap, there's nothing here. It's so, thin. So he held me and then he found two. And he goes, congratulations, you survived a prep game. Right? And that's what I learned is that like, yeah, sometimes it's a matter of just like surviving and learning from it so that it gets easier over time. Right? Yeah. Huh. The so, more you do it, it'll, it'll be okay. You'll get better. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell says that thing about ten thousand hours, right? Right. Yeah. When did so. you start to feel like your ten thousand hours set in, and you were feeling comfortable behind the lens? Well, you know, that's uh, hard to say because, like, by the time I started feeling comfortable with it, the newspaper industry was going through all these histrionics about shoot video, also <laughs> get audio, and it was almost like, oh my god, you're pushing me way out of my area of even knowledge, right? And so there were always times that would bring you back down to earth. Like, maybe I'm good at this, but maybe my uh, organization doesn't want it anymore, right? I, I don't know. I think a lot of people are feeling that way at this moment. Sure. Like, like I said, with all the stuff that's being implemented and, you know, with the goal of attracting new readers, it's like, Oh no! Puppeteering is out of my skill set, right? It's like <laughs> thank God, right? So I don't know. Talk to weird. me. Talk to me about Northridge, the earthquake. Uh, that was a crazy time for all those freelancers because it happened. It was big, right? And everybody scattered everywhere. And right. it's such an interesting, like that, the Rodney King riots because pre-cell phone. Communication was so limited. If you got out somewhere to try to get back somewhere, so what was your experience like during the Northridge earthquake? Because you got some really great images out of that. Yeah, uh, I mean, right. You remember back in the days, like when, like you'd be going home wherever you live, and then you get somewhere, you're very close to home, and all of a sudden you see a big fire, and you're you're off and about like, or right. you're already off and you're driving home and you see a big fire, you stop, you shoot it. Oh, guess what? I got to drive back down to downtown LA. <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah, I mean, it was, it was difficult. And that was one of those times when we all worked like weeks in a row because for months after that, there were stories because you know, the freeways did. collapsed, people lost their homes, 
people were still red tagged out of their residencies, right? It was like, yeah, FEMA was, FEMA was here. Right. The, U, the university was a wreck. That right, place got right. destroyed. Right. And <laughs> I remember going down to, uh, I think it was Redondo Beach, and the parking lot had like these sinkholes, like uh-huh. a dozen of them or so, if I recall correctly. And then, you know, you, then you drive up to Northridge itself or along Victory Boulevard there, and shit was on fire. And. You know, buildings had collapsed. Yeah, it was crazy. But to be honest with you, that was so long ago. I don't know. Sometimes my uh, memories are foggy about that because that's not time a bad passes, p- right? I mean, and you've moved on to like so much other stuff. <laughs> so, but yeah, and that was exciting. That was really exciting. And like I said, we all worked long hours and months, long stretches, months. right? That was right. such a long, lingering story. Right. It, the earthquake was seven seconds, but that story lasted forever. Right. It took a while to build the freeway back, right. get buildings, apartments, all the collapsing. I mean, it was a lot of work. Right. I think we, I remember that uh, the LA Times published a book out of that, like six months later. And uh, yeah, there was so much work that we were able to publish a book out of it. Jesus. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? And so you're not, I mean, you're 38 years old when the time says, welcome to the club. We're bringing you on as a staff. Like, Ryan. I mean, you've got your 10,000 hours in You're you're legit now stamped a staffer. What was that like when that goes down for you? Oh God, it was my birthday. And, uh, which is September 11th, right? It's nine 11. But um, I had freelanced there for a while, right? And the thing about it, it, like I said, it was so out of control. Like nobody was like managing the freelancers. Like the only manager you had was whoever you were working for that day, right? And you got called in every day or not right. or every other day or whatever. So, um, yeah, the freelancers did a lot of work there in the early 90s. And wouldn't you know it, someone at the LA Times took advantage of it, a manager, and put his son on the freelance payroll. And uh, promptly, like, that was the richest freelancer ever because I think he got paid $1.5 million over a couple of years or something like that. So then they clamped down. They said, oh, God, this freelance thing is out of control. So they cut us down to... (laughs) It was drastic. One day every two weeks. That's how bad they wanted to get it under control, right? But um, anyway, so this went on for a while, and I had to go end up finding work with the Boston Globe, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, Washington Post. And at that time, it wasn't that hard because... It was all about that time of OJ. Mm-hmm. So people needed the OJ shots, whatever the hell they were, right? So, but it lasted like maybe about six months or so, maybe a year. And then the LA Times realized, man, we can't do this without extra bodies, right? Because, like I said, they had all kinds of additions at that time and community sanctions. So they brought a handful back as contract guys, two year contract. And I think it might have been about a year into that contract or less than a year. It's my birthday, and then this memo comes up. This email says, hey, big meeting about staff changes, right? This, 
afternoon, and I thought, okay, uh, they're probably going to say this isn't working either, just like they did with the freelancers, and then I'd be out of a job, right? So wouldn't you know it? I went back to the LA Times, and they said, hey, if you're on contract at this moment, uh, consider yourself officially hired. And I was like, this is the best birthday ever, right? But I thought it, it could go either way there at you know, in the morning, I was like, hmm, I, <laughs> Best I better do this assignment right because it could be the last one ever for the LA Times. And it was like kids playing chess. <laughs> and these were the most beautiful photos of kids playing chess ever, right? <laughs> were so, they Life Magazine quality? <laughs> oh, no, not quite. <laughs> but, you know, you know, and then I guess from that experience, you always have to remember look, every day could be your last. For whatever reason, you better do something good. Yeah, right? yeah, it, so, it could be. You right. gotta, you gotta have that edge all the time of like, I gotta keep proving myself. I gotta get better. I don't get soft. Right. Don't get complacent. Move, right. move, move. Right. Yeah. Right. It's all about making pictures. We got great jobs. Right. It's sad right. if you take advantage of it and go, eh, that nah, that was that was okay. Right. Think I, you know, I, my thought process was always. It could be the first time someone ever sees your image. Do you want them to see the right. one the day you just went, ah, I don't care about this. Right. And your name's on the bottom of it? Right. right. Then they look so, at it and go, ah, right. that Lewis and Matt guy are crap. Right. I mean, yeah, you have to have professional pride, I think. you know. Right. Take advantage of it and go out and bust your ass. Right. How were those early years for you on staff? Were they easy? Were you... Pushing yourself where yeah, you're you surrounded to, by great talent. Right. You have to push yourself. Right. And, um, right. And, you know, I was still young, young ish at the time. So, um, right. It opened a whole bunch of opportunities for me. Like I say, from the clubs to the ballet to major sports to covering the con a conflict to everything to a portrait of a celebrity or a movie star or musician that you've admired i mean yeah you couldn't help but get better i mean there are a lot of people i worked with that were super super talented so and you'd see their work i mean i'm not much of a studio guy but i remember seeing Ra randy leffingwell's work or jim mendenhall in mm -hmm. the studio with products or portraits or cars even and i'm like that's some good stuff right there right like randy levingwell would take ferraris out into the desert take them under like this beautiful sunset light and he had set up all these lights right and to take a picture of a car so it kind of instilled in your mind that like people around here take this stuff very seriously right or most of them right so i probably should also bring your a game right like all the time. How did you take in those late 90s to digital? Did you enjoy it? Or was it something where you were like, oh, God, another thing I got to learn? No, because, you know, it was pretty much the same uh, operating like a, a an SLR, right? Like, But the thing that I didn't like about it was the quality was really bad. Yeah. I remember those uh, what a Nikon or Canon... Um, Canon Kodak hybrids. Right. You remember those things? They were things? horrible. Right. But the thing that I think like um, was cool about it was like, it was just like magic. 
Sure. Right? And then, again, it was almost like you didn't have to, like, catch a fire in San Pedro or whatever. And then on when you're Call already back off work. To the and office, then, yeah. Know. So I like that. Again, the in the early days, though, the quality was really poor. When I look at those files now, it's like, how did they even put this on paper? Right. right? You almost wanted to be apologetic to the readers. Right. We're sorry. Right. <laughs> but it got better. Yeah. It got a lot better. I remember sitting next to Mark Terrell, and he had one of those early ones, those hybrids, and he was just so frustrated because he wasn't on lights. AP didn't have lights at the forum. Right. And the cameras couldn't render the Laker yellow. Right. Like, it couldn't make it. It was more like mustard. Right. And he was so frustrated, like, what what am I going to do? Like, this doesn't look like a Laker uniform. Right. People are going to, like, think we're cr- – it's like, he had no choice. Like, that's what was it. And we remember, we couldn't push that stuff very far. Right. The crop factor was right. horrible. Right. Ugh. Right. It would just be a snowstorm. Yeah. Right? And under was, certain light conditions, it was like, oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Right. The magic disappeared. <laughs> right. It was cool two hours ago. Did you ever have a timetable in your head where you're like, okay, I'm going to become a photographer, senior photographer, maybe I'll work a desk, work my way up, and like, did you ever think management, like director of photography, and even even if that meant you leaving the LA Times and having to take a job at the Denver Post and then maybe the Washington Post, like, was that ever something you thought as you got into your 40s? Um. No, you know what? I'd never wanted to uh, be an editor. I'll be honest with you, because I think you deal with a lot of personalities and you're looking at a lot of photos and I'd rather be taking them and, like I said, experiencing life. However, you know, um, at the time that the George Floyd thing happened, right, and we were all asking questions about race and stuff, I just started thinking... Well, I wouldn't have taken the job, but it would have been nice if someone offered because I thought I was very competent at what I did and I work well with other people. I have some pretty good ideas and I read a lot, so I'd know a lot about stuff and, you know, I would know what important assignments were if I was an editor, but... But you never put feelers out like, hey, if that's... No, not so much. But I don't know if I was a manager, a higher-up manager, I would notice somebody's work, right? I would be like, hey, this Matt Brown guy's pretty good. Um, And then monitor it. And then after you got to a certain level, if I was still like the guy running the show, I'd be like, hey, Matt, yeah, I ever thought about becoming an editor? Right. Right? But I always leave it to other people to... I expect other people to go, hey, that Luis Cinco guy's doing really good work, right? I'm not the kind of guy that goes out there and goes, hey, Matt, you see my A1 photo today? Because, mm-hmm. of course, you saw it, but right? But isn't that like <laughs> almost kind of like a dangerous thing because then they can say, well, he's doing such great work, we're going to leave Luis out there and make, keep making great work. If we pull him off from taking pictures and we put him in the office, is he going to make other people better? Or like, do we want to lose that? Right. A plus guy. Right. I, you know what? I I think we were talking earlier about like, uh, I'm pretty close to, I mean, there's a lot more days behind the cart than in front of the horse for me. Right. So um, I think that now, I think the LA Times really values my work. Like, 
they just realize that like I crank it out, man. I do assignments every day, and that's on top of like stuff that I find time for to do on my own, mm-hmm. as far as like stories and stuff. So I think that at this point, I don't know, unless it all goes to hell, I think I'm pretty untouchable, right? <laughs> right, right. Which is a good feeling because, as you know, throughout the career, we're so full of self-doubt. Yeah. Right? And we strive to get better, and we wonder if we're getting better. And It's nice to get to a place where people go, hey, you're pretty good. We're going to let you do what you, you do. You do you, right? right. But having said that, I've been, um, I don't know. Would you have ever at any point, let's say in the, in the 2000s, would you have said, oh, I was going to leave for a job at the Washington Post or the New York Times? or Would you have left L.A.? Or is that even Well, something? here's the thing is I had some feelers out, and then um, there was a possibility at one time at the New York Times, but I don't know. Some I'm guys a, are L.A. guys. They just right, don't want to deal. Well, I'm more of a West Coast person. Okay. Like, I go back east, and I'm like, this is too entrenched in something that I cannot define. Right? There are some traditions there that it's not me. I'm a guy from the West. Like, I came to L.A. after college because all I knew about L.A. is that you could completely transform yourself. You didn't need a, an Ivy League degree. You didn't need to go to, you know, military school and high school, all that right. East Coast crap, right? And I'm sorry to East Coast people, but... It's a, more of a hobnob kind of thing. Right. It's a, there's a, a, a culture, to, yeah. a society that's more entrenched there than here. I mean, let's not say that there aren't, like, exclusive things here for oh, exclusive sure. people, but... Like I said, L.A. is like you can come here at the age of 60 and redefine yourself if you really wanted right. to, right? Yeah, that you're so. not doing that in Manhattan. Right, and That's I, hard. I don't know about the high-rise living. I like my feet on the ground. <laughs> I like, uh, you know. But New York is interesting. Every time I've gone there, I'm like, this is like the center of the universe, right? But. I don't know if I want to live at the center of the universe. Right, right? visiting I'd, is one thing. Right, I'd rather go there and then do get, my thing and get out. Right? Get your fill of it and be like, right. all right, I'm heading home. Right. Yeah, that's that's sometimes a much easier thing to do. Right. So oh, your birthday, like we said, it's September 11th. How was that day for you in 2001? It's weird now, like September 11th, 2000. Your regular birthday guy. Right. Now every day on your birthday, it's like having a birthday on I think it was December 9th, Pearl Harbor Day. Like right. it's on a mark. When that happens on September eleventh, where were you when that happened? Oh, you know what? I had taken the day off. And at the time my ex wife was working for Habitat for Humanity and their office was just right down the street. And um we I woke up and I didn't wake up. I heard knocking on the door. It was way before office hours, I remember, I think, or right around the time you're supposed to be going to work. And it was all of her colleagues from Habitat for Humanity, and they were like, hey, can we, like, watch your TV? Because at the time, you couldn't really watch it on your phone. No, right? no, like no, no. Blackberries at the time was they the didn't most advanced have, thing. Yeah, right? but they didn't have that, no. So <laughs> turned on the TV right in time to see, I believe it was the second plane crash right into the other tower and 
I was just like, wow, this is crazy. So I immediately called the desk and they said, go to a nearby school. I'm sure the parents are all frantically picking up their kids. And so I went to a local school. Sure enough, that was what is happening. Then I called in after that. They said, go to the Red Cross and like the Pico Union area. Uh, I went there. There was like a line that stretched like two blocks of people wanting to donate blood. Right. And then after that, it was already getting like, I don't know, this all took time. And then uh, after that, I ended up going down to Huntington Park of all places, which is like a heavily Mexican community, right? Like right along the 710. And thousands of people had gathered in one of the parks there. And then it turned into this huge candlelight vigil, right? And then everywhere you went, I just worked late into that night just looking for stuff that would reflect this because I think we had already dispatched a couple people to try to drive back east, right? So I just wanted to look for stuff close by. And it was amazing. It was amazing. I don't think I've ever seen the United States that unified before or after. It was like amazing to see like how it just pulled all of us together, right? And I don't know. So I guess that's the positive takeaway from my birthday, you know, falling on the same day. But as we get older, I mean, I've noticed that like a lot of kids have been born since 9-11, right? And a lot of them, it's not even in their consciousness anymore. Right. Other than they might realize that, like, hmm, how come we're always at war? <laughs> like, my whole life, my country has been at war, right? So maybe, maybe they realize it, but, you know, things pass. I mean, and now, damn, we have a 24-minute news cycle. You think it's that long? Yeah, a 24-second <laughs> news cycle, right? It's crazy. Yeah. It's almost like... I don't know if it's definitely there isn't that level of awareness of what happened that day, right? The yeah. good and the awful. Well, it, I, I find it interesting, like these, the dominoes in your career. So then that happens. And then three years later, you know, yourself, Rick Loomis and Robert get dispatched to go cover a war in Iraq. Right. And you get sent to Fallujah. Well, I, I actually, in 2003, as I mentioned earlier, my dad passed away. Right? right. And it was sudden, and I got caught way off guard by it because, as I told you earlier, I was inseparable from my dad as a kid. And then, you know, by the time I was in high school, you know, I was like going to, I was thinking I'm going to Pullman because I got to go to get away from this guy. So there were a lot of unresolved things when he died. And I just started like thinking, you know, what would my dad do? And he migrated to the United States when he was 40. And all we had was like the suitcases in our hands and the clothes on our back. And I thought that was very courageous. And so I started thinking that I need to do a little more at work to, you know, accept challenges and things like that. Like push myself more like my dad because I was kind of almost 40 at the time too right and um or i was actually 42 yeah right and um so i wasn't really thinking of anything specific just doing my thing and working hard and then i got a call 
from the the photo editor and he said hey I, you want to go to liberia <laughs> right and i said uh wait a minute isn't that where they cut people's heads off and leave them along the side of the road but yeah he said yeah it, it's blowing up it's gonna something's gonna happen there right and he said we've got all our people in iraq right now because it was about the same time mm -hmm. and um so i said yeah i guess i'll do it and so i called my ex-wife and she was a former reporter and so she understood but damn i had two kids with her at the time right so she was just kind of like wtf right but she was very supportive so i ended up going there and then um well that, uh, i did not end up going to liberia because what happened was I got a call back, or I called my editor back, and he said, oh, by the way, we're switching you to Iraq because one of our photographers from Iraq is really is much closer to you, to to uh, to uh, Liberia than you are. So she ended up going there, and I ended up going to Iraq to cover for her. And that was the first time I was there. And I was there for maybe two and a half months. But it was uh it was it was at that time the the uh, invasion was over. It was just the start of the occupation. You could go anywhere you wanted to in Iraq and Baghdad, talk to anybody you wanted to. And it was great. It was great. Like, you know, getting all these stories with almost complete access, like free access. And then I don't know, I came home and then I thought, you know, I, this is a big story. This is a big, big story. I just, was it? Did it become bigger because you went there and saw what was happening? No, it was always on the front page okay. at that time, it was remember? Just, yeah. Right, and I thought, you know what, this is it. This is how to, like, be on the front page for a while, and that's going to be my challenge, right? So I ended up going back a year later, and that's when I went to Fallujah. And in one year... Um, it had completely changed. Like you could not go anywhere without like armed security and right. And if you did get caught, I don't know if you remember abducted at that time. I don't you remember that was like that Zarkawi guy making those terrible videos, right? Of people in orange jumpsuits and mm -hmm. anyway. You it probably, was frightening. Right. Yeah. And I, I just thought, oh, my God, if that happens to me, I am just going to run at them and, you know, suicide by <laughs> insurgent yeah. because I don't want to be on that video uh -uh. ever. Right. Like, uh, just kill me now. So now, did you take that into consideration? Oh, you're, yeah. You're going back. Yeah, right. I mean, you got an ex-wife, you got children, right? And you know, like when you went one time, it was right. close to being Disneyland. It's all you know enjoyable. Now yeah. you're going back to hell. Well, I wouldn't say it was Disneyland, but it was well, just right? the access was better. Right? I've heard though right. from that uh, that time right. in 2003 to right. going into like the time you went, right. it was night and day. Right, it is night and day. Right, and they had, uh, yeah, I remember the Hammer Hotel where all, just about every uh, news organization retreated to by 2004. They would have the craziest parties there, right? I remember people, like, coming in from Jordan because that's the way you had to come in at the time, and mm -hmm. they'd be bringing big old bottles of booze and a lot of Cuban cigars because it was kind of party time at the Hammer Hotel, but then, like, a year later, the Hamra was like a fortress. Nobody could leave without armed escort or whatever or you know, some sneaky way. So 
And at the time, I, I was married. I was still married. Okay. And I think the whole Iraq thing, I mean, she stuck with me for another, like, seven years, and we actually had, like, uh, my third child, whether it was my girl, was born about, I don't know, four or five months before I went back to uh, do Fallujah. So I think... I thank her now, looking back on it, for being so damn patient with me because I know that she was like, what the hell are you doing? But again, I was kind of like psychologically lost in that whole thing with my dad, right? And uh, she stuck with me, but I think by around 2011, 2012, she was pretty fucking tired of it. So anyway... Well, during that time, you meet Lance Corporal James Blake Miller. Right. And a relationship is born where it's almost like a if we're sitting around writing a Hollywood story, that's how it goes. Because that's rare for a photographer or a writer to have a relationship with your subject that lasts as long as it has for you to almost two decades. Right. Right. When, When you're in Fallujah, what's your mindset what because it's not now wandering around and flip-flops taking pictures but you're embedded with marines what was your day-to-day like thinking like just trying to make pictures and survive because there's images you have that it looks like you're trying to survive it's a heavy combat uh we uh me and patrick mcdonald the reporter embedded with the uh with charlie company of the Marine 1-8, 1st Battalion, 1st uh, Battalion, yeah, 1st Battalion, 8th Regiment. It's, I'm forgetting these things now. Yeah. But um, we were with them for two weeks, almost three weeks prior to the actual assault on the town. So I kind of knew it was going to be some serious shit, right? Like it, they were not f- playing around. And they had us run through their drills, right? Like how to disgorge from an APC and an armored personal carrier and all of the stuff, right? And did anyway. that freak you out any bit? Like, oh, oh, I was uh, I was freaked out, right? A little bit. I was just kind of like I was already freaked out because, like I said, about the guys they launched jumpsuit videos, right? I'm almost like, oh my god, uh, great propaganda. A, That's what it was. It was to right, terrify it, you. It terrorized me. It terrorized other people, right? So anyway, um, I'm sorry. No, no, but 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 being embedded with those. Oh yeah, right. How frightening are you trying to get your mind right to be like? I gotta be a professional. Gotta make pictures. Right. And the shit's hitting the fan. Right, and and the three weeks, the two weeks leading up to the actual assault, right? Like, um, we had to gain some people's trust. Like the people around us, these guys that were like thirty years younger than us, right? Yeah, because, I mean, you're, uh, you're you're in your you're good into your forties, and there's nineteen year olds, right? And so they were always wondering whether we were going to be a big burden on them, right? And on top of that, I mean, whether you like it or not, the military will drill a specific mindset into you, right? And one of those things is like kind of distrust of the media like especially after vietnam right Mm -hmm. so we had to work through all of that and then you know before the assault on fallujah we staged at the edge of town and there was the 
biggest freaking fireworks show I've ever seen. We shelled the hell out of Fallujah to soften it up, right? And uh, anyway, uh, so we went in and we we just gorged from these personnel carriers and had to lay on the ground and. You know, uh, Mosul, or not Mosul, but um, Fallujah is a city packed with mosques. And the mosques had uh, all their loudspeakers on, right, from for the stuff that they use, the mm-hmm. amplifiers they use for calling people to prayer. And the, somebody was speaking very rapidly at one of the mosques nearby that was coming through the speakers in Arabic. And I'm like, that is creeping me the fucking hell out, right? Like, it's not that I have anything against Muslims. It was just very surreal. I'm laying on the ground. There's a couple RPGs going up. There's this um, Arabic voice, like, screaming out of the dark. And at that point, actually, on the ride in, it was like we all crammed into that... APC and I, I, it was so packed. It was so packed. Like you couldn't move. You were in there like a sardine. And my leg somehow got, it was dark when we got on. So I couldn't see what the hell was in there. Nobody could. But there was a lot of metal stuff on the floor, like boxes. I think they were like ammunition boxes or something. And by the time I got into my position, which was, basically determined for me by this mass of people mush, uh, pushing into this tight space, I had one leg like trapped between these two very hard metal objects that I didn't know what. And I was thinking of the guy slams on the brakes, all of these people's weight is going to shift on me and my leg is going to snap in two. And so before... We went in while we were watching the fireworks show. Uh, I told Patrick, I said, hey, Patrick, man, if we go in there and I hear a bunch of stuff bouncing off the back of this thing or uh, on the outside of this thing, this personal carrier, I I, I may not get out, (laughs) right? I think I'm going to make my final decision at that point. Well, anyway, what, 10 minutes packed in this APC with a bunch of people thinking my leg is going to get snapped in two. I'm sweating my ass off. It's hot. We just watched a major bombardment. And as soon as that door opened, I was like, fuck it, I'm out of (laughs) here. Right? So I ran out without even thinking because I was just so freaking freaked out about the ride in. And then, like I said, we hit the ground, and then this all of this weird scenery, and then the Marines were actually firing up uh, these illumination flares. Right. And we were, like, so exposed. And I kept thinking, can you guys stop doing that? Please stop doing that. And I later find out they're doing it on purpose to draw fire so they know where the enemy is, right? And I'm like, oh, my. So, yes, I was freaked out, and that ha- went on like that for, like, the next 12 hours, like, overnight. Tell me so, this. What's your, what do you, describe to me what you're wearing. What's your, oh my God, your what's your uniform? Oh, I'm wearing, like, some khaki pants and okay. a, a T-shirt. Boots? Yeah, boots, like, steel-toed boots that I bought at Red Wing. Shoes. 
And then so uh, far, you sound like a construction worker, right? <laughs> except for the the helmet with your blood type, like scrawled in um, in uh, sharpie on it. Bulletproof vest. Bulletproof vest. Long um, sleeve jacket or just t shirt? No, just a t shirt. I had a sweater in my. It doesn't get that cold in Iraq, right? It just gets really hot. But um, anyway, uh, yeah. And uh, what cameras my cameras. I had two cameras. They were one D's, like one of the early versions right. of those. And I had an eighty to two or seventy to two hundred, and a sixteen or seventeen to thirty five. I think yeah, at the time something wide zoom. Right, and I didn't bring any strobes. Brought a bunch of batteries. But on, on top, uh, my laptop and R began. Remember those things, yeah. those satellite uh, dishes, mini satellite dishes. And uh, so just, your your idea is you're going to be with them as long as you can, and then transmit wherever you're at. Right, and it made it very difficult because they cut the power in the water to the city before the assault. So I was not taking a lot of photos. I was being very very judicious with like. What I took, because at the time I had like six batteries, and I didn't know how long I was going to be in there. So I minimized the chimping a lot. Right, because in those early cameras, that devoured batteries. Right. So I had six of them, and I didn't know how long I was going to be there. So I was being really careful with what I shot, right? And uh, I kept the edits down to like less than a dozen shots, like the first couple of days, because again, the uh, computer's running on power. The mm-hmm. R began's running on electricity, right? And your batteries. How many cards you have, right. you know, you got to, all those right. things start to come into the equation. Right. Oh, and on top of that, I was carrying a backpack with, uh, that was my laptop was in there. Like, I don't know three large bottles of water, like six MREs and some changes of T-shirts, but it ended up weighing about 40 pounds. And that was on top of the camera equipment, the vest and the helmet. It was hard, man. It was like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And on top of that, people were actively trying to kill you, right? Like we came under heavy fire a lot. And... You know, some, and this happened quite often, and it's actually a war crime, but the Marines were shooting like a illumination rounds over the city, the white phosphorus, they call it Willie Pete, I mm-hmm. think, and shit like burns. Like if it lands on your arm, it'll burn through your arm, and the only way to stop it is to cut off the oxygen, because you throw water on it, it's not going to do anything, right? right? So, yes, it was very dangerous. It was one of those things that, like, I had never been through that before. I mean, my previous war experience was I went to Croatia back in the 90s because San Pedro, there's a lot of Croatians over right, there. Yeah. Right, yeah. Huge, right. huge population of Croatians that live there. Right. So I ended up going to cover that war for a little bit, but it was nothing like Fallujah. I mean, this was a full-on assault by, like, the toughest warriors in the world like you know the marines whatever your your uh philosophy is on war and the military those guys are very well trained right they're gonna if it goes all wrong on them then it must be like some kind of like they're facing superior forces or something because they will fight their way out of anything Right. So, what was that first 15 minutes like? 
you get your ass out of that transport. What what's the first fifteen minutes like? That's yeah, it was like I say, RPGs flying, then we had to move through the dark. We were there for about five minutes, and then we had to the. Um, are you um, trying to assess like, okay, can I make a picture? Or are you trying to assess? Oh, like, that was so dark. Patrick, let's just right. let's just hold right. the ground. <laughs> right. No, it was super dark, and except for the illumination flares that I said run up, and you know they'd come down in I don't know ten, fifteen seconds or so, so it'd get dark again. And again, there were RPGs flying, and there were bullets flying, and I. Uh, so you're kind of worthless. You can't make a picture in the right dark. at that point. I'm like, wow, <laughs> right. exactly, right? You're thinking, I'm. He can I'm at least a take tourist notes. in a really bad yeah. place, right? So anyway, well, we moved from there through the dark. We had to follow those these little glow sticks that one of the advanced guys had like laid out and that was freaky too it's like oh god so and then we ended up at this traffic circle and we came under heavy fire in the traffic circle so we all had to dive behind the curb and the curb is like six eight inches high and the half of your body is exposed above the curb right and we were there for the night under fire and I don't know, at one point I was standing there before we like took a dive on the dirt, right, or on the road. I saw an RPG coming right at us, and I thought, holy shit, right? But wouldn't you know it, it flew over our heads, and then it exploded behind us. So that was like the, okay, hey, everybody, get behind the six-inch curb, right? <laughs> And of course, it rained that night, and it was miserable. But actually, that's where I took my first photo because when you're prone like that, you're on the ground. There's a marine next to me. There's flares going up, so I put the camera on the ground next to me and took like a what, like a one second exposure or something. And I fired off several frames, but that was it. Because like I said, going in, you had to have in your mind that like you're not gonna shoot everything. Because you only have so much battery. Was that hard to have? It was that, hard to but have that I, much self control. Well, it wasn't hard in that moment because it was just most of the time it was really dark and I didn't want to like pop my head up and yeah. get sniped, you know. So yeah, you don't right. It wasn't hard ass. at that point, <laughs> but but it did get harder until we ran across these guys from the BBC who were. Um, embedded with a different group and they bought one of those little honda generators they're like as big as a little suitcase they're like yeah. one one horsepower or something but man it powered up my stuff so wow right so we got lucky right thank god for the bbc and right. someone with a bringing a generator we had asked for the generator from the baghdad bureau and they brought it like somebody brought it to the gate of camp fallujah before we actually participated in the assault but this thing was like your typical generator it like took like two people to carry oh, it yeah, right no. and it was like we just left it in Kavluja. it's like no freaking way man you've already got like a 40 pound pack all that protective gear cameras it's like i'm not gonna be hauling a big ass generator around yeah that's right. not what you need to do right but you know i've been meaning to buy one of those little hondas <laughs> I just never get around to it. It's 20 years later, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I better buy one of those little Hondas. After the podcast, we'll go to Home Depot and <laughs> right. get you one. 
<laughs> right. Because you never know. You might need one in an earthquake. Yes. Right? Yeah. Or just a power outage. You know, blackout right. summer's coming. You never right. know. Right. When did you finally feel in the those couple of days that you can make some pictures and you, I mean, you're always worried about yourself, but right. you were making some pictures. Oh, it happened right away. Like after dawn broke, right? And somewhere along the night, a tank came by and went down the street that was on the other side of the traffic circle and was just machine gunning everything in sight. So it quieted down for like the last couple of hours that we were still there. And eventually, um, one of the Marines, uh, you know, they've got this whole unit that drives bulldozers and stuff around. So they parked a bulldozer right in front of us at the traffic circle. And so we eventually were like, had some cover there. But then as soon as dawn broke, we started moving down the streets and came under heavy fire, like immediately. And so we dove into this house and that's when that white phosphorus around came down and we were like, oh crap, so we get in some shelter now, right? So anyway, it happened very quickly. We ran across like three dead insurgents or two dead ones and a guy that was like maybe 18. And he kept like trying to say something in Arabic and... uh, Right, and I, I, I just looked at him and go, Fuck. I mean, he had bled out already. His, the, the soil and stuff or the street, the gravel around him was just kind of blue-red, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of his blood had come out. And I knew, like when I made eye contact with a kid that like, I'm sorry, guy, but I think you're already dead. That's what I thought in my head. I'm like, kid, you're already dead, man. And so, of course, they had to flip him over, right, to uh, try to assist him. We had to take cover again because we didn't know the guy was, like, booby-trapped, right? And so it was pretty hairy, but the photos were right away. Are, are you censoring yourself because you know there's only so much the paper can publish? Right, you have and, to do that. And, but are you saying, okay, there might be a photo worth taking that doesn't see the light of day in the newspaper? I mean, the thing about it is, like, I saw, I mean, I w- let's say I saw my share of, like, dead bodies, mm-hmm. and they were horribly dead. I mean, not just dead. Parts of dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Big old holes in the skull and people torn apart. And I, yeah, there were photos that you could have taken, but there was none of the photos, like that one from Vietnam with the dead uh, VC guy and you know pictures of his family, his mm-hmm. wife and his daughter on the ground beside. I didn't see any of that. And to be honest with you, I'm not religious, but I kind of believe in the concept of karma. And I felt like that would be a horrible thing to do. It's just take photos of something that, like, I don't know. There might be something, but. I just didn't want to do it. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough situation right. that guys get into in that situation where you're like, okay, I need to make my photos. I'm here. I'm sent. I have an employer that wants me to make these photos. Right. And there's boundaries we have set. Right. And then there's the realism. Right. And like, they're weird how you kind of blur. And so, right. like, you look what happened in World War II, what was shown, Korea, Vietnam. The, right. the conflict in the 90s, again in Iraq. And now, and it, 
that line keeps getting pushed further right. and further. What right. we're showing, what we're showing. Right. Even now, they're showing more and more and more. Right. So did you ever feel like, I'm going to push a boundary? I'm going to try to, I'll, I'll send it to them. If they uh, don't want to use it, they don't yeah, use I it. Yeah, I took a shot of that kid that was dying and I took a shot of his comrades that were in the middle of the street and they used it but it was in a wider context with like Marines you know in the frame it wasn't just like a, a, a dead body shot right? mm-hmm. and no matter how poignant those can be sometimes but again it's like when I did end up taking dead body shots I would try to concentrate on parts legs right hands but the kids, the 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 sad thing about it is they they were the enemy, the insurgents. But damn, they were kids, man. Right. They were kids, and I just and the tough part is they're not wearing a uniform that says right. enemy. Right. They're in street clothes, so it's hard right. when you're taking that photo to say like, oh, he was a bad guy. Right. Ten minutes later, he was shooting at us with an AK. Right. Where it could just look like it's a dead civilian. Right. Uniforms say a lot. They right. do help push a, a narrative and a story when you're right. when you're showing those images. It makes it difficult. Right. But even today, I don't know. I still kind of believe that, like, I don't know. You have to leave, give some people some dignity, right? Mm-hmm. Even if they're freaking horribly dead. So I don't know. I I don't think I'd take those shots today. Either. Yeah. I would. And again, I think I justified it for the first few days by like. Dude, you can't shoot everything. Right. right. Your batteries are going to go out, and then you're going to be stuck here just running from house to house under fire and not doing anything. So there were a lot of things at play, but again, I think the main thing was karmic. Yeah, and a- absolute self-control you have to do that, to worry about space, battery, time, how much you have to right. utilize stuff, that's hard because you come out right. there and you just want to start taking pictures. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you think that it was easier for you because you were a little older? If you were 20, yeah. would you have just been gone out there and just shot everything? Yeah. I mean, being wiser, I, a little gray hair goes right. a long way. Right. And I think that, um, I don't know. I, I, I have really mixed feelings now about my conflict photography, right? Because I think sometimes it just kind of pushes a narrative that may not be what your intention is or what you derive from an image that you take. It could be somebody else. Somebody else could take it a whole different way. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What, what was the question? Again? Well, are, okay. Well, let's talk about let's talk about the the marble photo. Are uh-huh. you happy? You took that photo? I have mixed feelings about that. Like I said, uh, the way I interpret that photo is so different than many other people had interpreted it. And again, you know, as we spoke earlier, as you get older, a lot of questions start coming up. Right. right? And then you really begin to wonder, like, if anything that you do is under any of your control, once you release it, send it, transmit it back to the desk who shares it with AP and, you know, magazines in Europe want to buy it. And it's almost like it's out of your hands. Mm -hmm. Millions of people see it and they could come up with an interpretation of the photo that is so 
not even close. But what are you going to do about it? Right. There's nothing you can do about it. Because you're a very sensitive person. So Oh, I think so. Right. right. And and it shows in your work. It shows the way you approach and make pictures of your subject. So I'm seeing that when you took that, it had a lot of thought in it. You weren't just happy snapping Marine no. with cigarette. There was a lot of thought in that photo for you. Well, I got to say, it was re- reaction. We had broken into a house. The Marines, we, I, at one point when we were, uh, again, under heavy fire, these tanks came, gave us a little bit of cover. The Marines kicked down the gate of this house, kicked down the front door of the house. We all stormed in there. They basically had to like clear the place, make sure that there was nobody in there. And then we all ended up on the roof, or not all of us, but me and a half dozen Marines were up there. And again, an RPG, I saw it coming right at me. And I was standing next to Blake Miller at the time. It was before I took the shot. And up until I saw him after that, like after about a year, we reconnected after I took his photo. I said, dude, were you there when that RPG was coming at us? And at the last second, it veered away for some strange reason. And he said, yeah, it was the hand of God. Because it was coming right at us. And right in the last second, it just veered away. And I was like, okay, I don't want to say anything because I think everybody's like freaked out at the moment. Right? So then there was heavy fire coming from this house. And Miller was the radio man, and he said he was talking with the tank people down below, and he said, it's that house over there, and they fired a couple of shells, and then it got really quiet. Like, everybody in that house was either, like, mortally wounded or dead, right? So I sat down. I sat down next to uh, Patrick McDonald, who was like, He's weirdly unflappable, that guy. And I think it's because he's like the crazy professor. Like, I don't know if he's fully comprehending what's <laughs> happening around him. But he was sitting there. He was like, he's a roll-your-own-cigarette kind of guy. So he's rolling a cigarette, and I'm like, oh, my God. So I sat down next to him, and then wouldn't you know it? Like, a minute later, Blake Miller sits down pretty close to us, like diagonally from us, about 10 feet leans up against the wall there and starts smoking. And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of in shock, but I'm thinking, oh, look at that, his helmet, check out his face. I'm, I'm like, that's kind of a neat shot. I don't know why the hell I was thinking that. But then I raised my camera and fired off like 12 frames. And that was it. Like I said, it wasn't so much, maybe there was thought there, but it was already kind of like muscle memory, like, in embedded in my mind or my brain but it was pretty quick because we were all kind of like in shock at that time this is again after like all night behind that curb and the marines somewhere close by firing off illumination flares that lit us up and i'm just like oh my god why don't do that right so it was crazy 
it was crazy. And then it, the craziness continued for another week, and then it started to mellow out, and that's where you started encountering, like, a lot of dead bodies. We did a great job there of, like, clearing out the insurgents. When you get back to base... Uh-huh. What's your, like, are, are, is it a big, deep breath for you? And, like, you know, oh, my God, I yeah. can't believe we went through that and yeah. decompress for you and Patrick? Or is Patrick nutty enough professor, he's just rolling his next cigarette and doesn't care? I mean, it's got to be, it's got to. What happened there? Oh, you know what? Patrick stayed. What happened was we were there. It was almost like, I think it was over two weeks we were there already. And, uh. I remember I was back at the command center and this truck pulls up and the New York Times guy and the AP woman were on there. And I know Ashley, we were actually friends. Uh, Ashley's the, he was a freelancer for the New York Times at the time. And um, I said, where are you guys going? And they said, we're out of here. And I was just like, I was shocked for a second, but... That's kind of like your cue to leave. When the wire people are like, we're out of here, then it almost gives you like the freedom to leave if you want, right? And by that time... Um, well, why are they jumping ship? Story's done? Oh, yeah. It had fallen off the front page. I mean, it was still there. I mean, right. it went on for a couple of months after the news media left. But, um, right, it... God, our attention span is so right. Damn it short. is very short. Jesus Christ! Right. So I was like, "Oh God, should I get out?" So I talked to Patrick about it, and Patrick's like, "No, I'm gonna stay." And for some reason, I was just like, "You know what? I don't want to push my luck here. This has been like crazy, crazy." So I left too, but I don't know. Later, I found out that um, I don't know. Ashley had a. A situation. He wanted to take a photo so bad, and the Marines wouldn't let him do it unless he had an escort out there. And so he ran out there with a Marine, and apparently the Marine got killed by a sniper. And the kid's name apparently was Miller, also. So these are the things you, you I think about. Like I think about that now. Like you know, it's like you have as a photojournalist sometimes, oddly. You have control over life and death. Yeah. It's really weird how you you have that sometimes. And that came loud and clear in Libya. Like, I never went back to the Middle East. It took like seven years for me to like even think about going back to the Middle East, right? And I went back there because of the Arab Spring. And I Was that enough to drive you back? That you thought that there was a real story there after what you went through? I mean, you went through Well, here's the thing. By the time, the, by the time I, they were looking again, just like the first time I went to Iraq, they were looking for people to replace people that had been there for a while or were moving on to another story. So I ended up going to Egypt. And the minute I landed in Egypt, the bureau chief there said, oh, by the way, there's this medical mission to Libya tomorrow. You should probably go. So I ended up going, and I didn't have any protective gear, nothing. I mean, not even a, oh, I brought like a skateboarding helmet because I thought it was going to be riots like it was in um a protest, large protest, like it was skateboarding. What do you think you're covering? Rollerblading? That's all you no, had? No, because I did, it, it wasn't a war. 
Right. It yeah. was it just was people gathering in the streets against Gaddafi, right? And so I know that even here I bring like a skateboard home because when people throw shit, you could get hit, you uh-huh. hit you on the head, right? So I brought a skateboard home. That was all I brought because I was not expecting a war. I mean, the war did not happen in Egypt. It did not happen in Tunisia. It didn't happen in a couple of other countries where, where the uh, Arab Spring started taking off, right? But wouldn't you know it, like a couple of days after I get to uh, Benghazi, damn if it didn't break out into a full-on war, right? And it was just like, oh, good God. I welcome <laughs> welcome I, to the niche. Right. And again, I went to Egypt because I thought it was going to be large protests. And actually, by the time I got there, the photo editors were telling me, you know what, it's over. We're going to start doing like pieces, uh, stories about how the common Egyptian lives. So I was supposed to do that, right? Like it would have been a portrait series maybe or hanging out with a family for a few days. But again, I was not expecting war to break out on me like it did. So... But you, yeah. but you somehow you got through it and covered it. And oh God, it was... I was there for like forty-two days, man. I was there a long time, and actually, after I got back from that, like it just crumbled with my marriage. My ex-wife was like, "You know, your kids wonder where the hell you are," and I don't know what to tell them. That's always the challenge, isn't it? Right. When you have those kind of assignments, that right. it's two weeks, three weeks. Now it's forty-two. It's coming home. Attention on the family. Right. And, you know, I have to say this, full disclosure here. Like, I think between about 2004 and about 2013, I think I was really fucked up. I think my mind was really fucked up. And I just covered it real good. And I covered it by, like you say, everybody's observation about me is like, I'm this machine I take photos every day. I file, I take a photo for myself every day. Because if the assignments are bad, I got to feel like, wow, what is the reason I'm still doing this? And I think I was like seriously, seriously fucked up. Do you think that starts from your dad, loss of your father? Uh, Not so much that. I think it was like, I think it was mainly Fallujah. Fallujah. That was some crazy shit. Right, right, your own and PTSD. Like, oh, I think I was seriously fucked up with PTSD. I think I really was. I had a very short temper. Uh, I worked all the time. And then, you know, uh, when I wasn't working, I'd spend all the kid time with the kid. I was obsessed all the time with whatever I was doing. And that's kind of a sure sign that um, something's going on, right? right? Like, and I was, I'm still hyper aware like, I always look around me wherever I am and think, like, okay, who are the trustworthy people in here in this room or whatever? Who's got an RPG? <laughs> right. It's just, it, it, it fucked me up pretty good. And yeah. I, I had to do a lot of therapy, right? And uh, I think it was good. I think it was really good. And um, like I say, I, I'm just saying this because... I know there are other photojournalists and journalists and just normal people dealing with something that was so completely traumatizing. And you have to recognize or you have to listen to the people who love you about like, hey, uh, we think something's terribly wrong with you. Like I say, none of my colleagues really did because 
I do a pretty good job hiding it. I sure. Think, right? I, you'd see me at games, and I wouldn't be talking about the war or right. whatever. I'd just be like, hey. I could see a change. I mean, there wasn't like a red flag change, right. but you could definitely see you went from one person to a slightly different in it. Right. That's just natural. Right. Well, you know, for uh, after I reconnected with Blake Miller, I ended up doing following him for like a year and a half, like right. going back to Kentucky. And there are many instances where, like, I was like, dude, I feel the same way you do. And he fully came out and was fully diagnosed with PTSD. Right. I mean, so, just for you to drive him to Connecticut. Right. I mean, that, right. that is a father move. Well, I'm as old as his dad. Right. But that's right. a dad move. Like you right. had your your dad blinkers on to right. like, okay, th- uh, this is not anymore a subject and professional. This right. is like, I'm a dad and I see what's going on. Right. You're a human being that needs help and I'm right. going to do it for you. Right. And, you know, by that time, it was a year after Fallujah. And then by the time I finished doing the story, it was two and a half years later. And, you know, at that time, and it's still happening now, what is the number? Like 20, 30 veterans commit suicide every day, every day. And when I I, um, saw Blake and he was struggling, I'm like, man... Again, I don't want to go too deep into my thoughts on war, but I think it's pretty wasteful. And I thought that, like, oh, my God, I took a photo of this kid. He became world famous. Maybe that has something to do with where his head's at. And whether it does or not, I just don't want him to be another statistic of that battle. Right. Right? Because a lot of people died in that battle. And a lot of people died after the battle because they couldn't, you know, what, deal with it. What you did for him, like when I heard about that, I thought uh-huh. you can go on a rampage uh-huh. and rob cars and uh-huh. banks. Right. You could do no wrong in my eyes. After what you did for one person oh, was God. the sweetest thing because it's an absolute easy move to do and not enough people do it. Right. Right. It's but, just, it uh, was a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's one yeah. human caring for another. And like you said earlier, it's like a story like that. I mean, thinking about it on a professional level, a story like that sometimes doesn't come around in people's lives lifetimes. I mean, it all worked out, right? Took a photo. Well, survived a bunch of shit. Photo goes viral at the time, which meant like every front page of every newspaper anywhere. And uh, yeah, you just, I don't know. But you, but you, you, you've got this unbelievable way of like, like the story in El Salvador. What the hell are you thinking? Like, I like to go to El Salvador and photograph some penitentiaries and prisons. And like, well, that's another function, actually. Like, you, you remember I told we were talking about the management thing earlier. Yeah, it's like. Uh, the photo, the foreign photo editor at the time came to me and said. You're the only guy scruffy enough to do this. <laughs> and I'm like, I almost oh my God, <laughs> I'm never going to get promoted here. I'm too scruffy. I, what? Right? A, I didn't see that on your LinkedIn page. Scruffy <laughs> right. for photographer. Right. 
So that's always been kind of my thing. What a backhanded compliment that is. Well, I mean, How about tough as true? nails or a true fucking professional? It is true, though, because, like, you know what? I've spent probably about 60% of my career in, in scruffy neighborhoods, right? Uh, South L.A., East L.A., right? It's That's where I get sad because... You can quote I, I, unquote fit in. Right, they don't want to say it, but right. you can. Right. I think that scruffy is like, you'll fit in. Yeah. We're, we're You're not the white guy. <laughs> right. I'll say it. That's what they're thinking. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And that goes uh, again with what I told you about. Like, I would have never said, yes, I want to run the LA Times, but I would have like been, oh, God, they think enough of me to ask me if I want to be a manager, manage <laughs> other people. But that never happened. Right, this is the unspoken stuff, and like I said, I think sometimes, and maybe it's right time for the younger people to get more militant about it because us older people were patient with it, and maybe now it's the time for like kids to pick it up and like really, like finally cross home plate with it, right? Right. I mean, well, there's the whole thing where um, Malcolm X always got frustrated with Martin Luther King would turn the other cheek, and Malcolm right. was always like, no. By all means necessary. Right. We gotta flip a table and we gotta get their attention. Right. And so like right. enough was enough. So right. that sometimes that's kind of how it's gotta be. You can only right. be so wait and see for so long and it's sometimes you gotta set a fire under someone's ass. Right. Get shit going. Well, I remember back at the UW, I mean, you know, I look Mexican, but I'm Filipino and so I actually consider myself Asian or Pacific Islander. Right, yeah, right? you're Asian. Right. So I know that like when I was at the UW and hanging around with other Asian kids, our saying always was, and this sounds weird, but it was what the philosophy we followed is you got to learn the white guy's game and play it better. Right. That was it. That yeah. was like, and people sometimes, and I know it's a stereotype in a lot of cases, but people wonder how Asians do so well. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's it. They figure out the freaking game and they play it a lot better. Yeah. They understand there's a blueprint. Right. Yeah. So. It's not rocket that's science. That's where we were at at that time. And now, you know, it's like. I think the kids are saying more than like, let's out white the white people. They're more like saying, let's take a lead in the society that's now more uh, inclusive or more tolerant of other people. So I think it's the right thing to do. But like I said, I mean, God, don't forget the people that kind of made their way up, like putting up with a lot of things that we wouldn't even think about putting up with today. Right. Well, you've been a you've you've had no issue putting yourself in it between you know you went out you ran out to San Bernardino covered that absolute shit storm. Uh, Two thousand sixteen, there's a little get together of a couple of white supremacists in Anaheim. Anaheim, right? Your pictures of that, I mean, were unbelievable. Yeah, that was crazy. Crazy. That Tell was me crazy. that. Like, it's literally what half a dozen white guys acting like complete clowns and it turned right. on them right. at a it, park. Right. And it looked like you were the only guy there and you were literally tied at the hip with the action. Right. Well, you know what happened was like, uh, there were a lot of media people there, but then the KKK guys took their sweet time getting there. 
Right? So everybody laughed. Seriously, I was there for about six hours. I got hungry and I said, I'm going to run over to Vaughn's and get a sandwich at the deli. Well, almost a mistake because by the time I got back, they were pulling up. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to put the sandwich away for a while. And <laughs> they then, were on KKK time? Right. <laughs> and then uh, by then, it was me and... I don't even know. Was there TV there? I don't think TV It didn't look like it. By your right. pictures, and I studied them, like, right. you look, like, alone. Right. It was me and that guy from Cal State San Bernardino that's the expert on hate crimes. Okay. I can't remember. Levin, I think, is his name. Um, anyway, if you Google him, you'll find him. He's an expert on all this hate stuff, right? And um, what was weird was he was there for, uh, videotaping it with his camera, and at one point, I felt so irritated with the guy, like, get the fuck. But I didn't. I right, because like, there's a lot of times he's in your frame right, in the foreground, right, not behind you. Right. So anyway, I just let it go. And you know what? He actually saved. Like, what happened was, like, uh, yeah, this group of maybe about 20, like, anti-fascist people were there. And it didn't take but a minute before, like, the shit broke loose and two big guys were fighting well anyway three out of the five or three out of the six <laughs> kkk guys jumped back in the truck and took off right and wouldn't you know it they left a couple other people behind right and that one guy who's the grand poobah he was beaten like within an inch of his life it was getting to the point where like oddly enough i hate KKK and that kind of people. But it was getting to the point where like, I was like, almost like, um, Hey everybody, uh, can we cool it now? I got my pictures, right? Like, I mean, I mean, I'm saying it in a funny way, but I, there was like one second there where I thought, man, I gotta like, just go. Okay, guys, chill. Right. And luckily that Levin guy stepped in. And he was like, come on, man. You guys are going to kill this guy. Right. And you'll be the monster. Right. Like, do you want to be as bad as him? Right. And then he was quoted somewhere in another paper as saying that, like, he's Jewish. And he said to the guy, he said, how does it feel to have a Jewish person save your life? And it's like, yeah. It's like, come on, people. Really? I mean... You hate Jew, Jewish people that much that you're going to, like, have a whole organization, right? And that's true. It's, like, it's just weird. It's weird how shit like that happens, right? Like, your worst, your perceived worst enemy is going to save your ass. Was that so. weird to see that situation and be shooting it where it's, like, Fallujah, your ass is on the ground, bullets uh, are flying. Right. And this one, you're like literally watching a street fight that's not going to end until someone dies. Right. Like you're in the ring. Right. That's what that's what some of your photos look like. There's like right. one where someone's like trying to tear his patch off. Right. And he's got a flag and he's trying to fend it. You right. look like you're in the ring with them. Right. At one point, one of the not KKK guys was like just wildly swinging. And I was like, shooting over his shoulder and he turned around and was about ready to punch me and I said, whoa, dude, no, no. And he stopped. But yeah, it's like that. And then actually when I was in Libya, 
people are shooting these AK-47s off right next to me. There were so many times when, like, they would just celebrate by emptying a clip into the air, right? Oh. And the fixer driver guy I had there was like, dude, you don't even flinch. And that was about the time I started thinking, I, I think I may be a little fucked up. <laughs> right? I bet it too much. Right. Well, here's the thing. I can't complain because there have been people that have made entire careers out of war. Yeah, But I never wanted to do that. The only times I ever got involved in any conflict was because I wanted to be part of the story that was on AIM-1. Whether it was an earthquake or a presidential election or a war or a forest fire, a wildfire. That's all I really wanted. I never set out to say, I'm going to cover every war there is, even if it's an uh, ivory war in Africa that nobody knows about. Right. right? I mean, you said fire. Your fire photos are unbelievable. They're so different almost than other people's. It's like um, you're capturing like epic moments. It's I, that Dixie fire stuff. Some of your images from there are horrible to say, but beautiful. Oh, yeah. Right. I think that like that's been kind of my weird trademark. And people have told me, like, how do you go to hell and find good pictures? I'm like, I don't know. It just happens. Looking for good light, <laughs> right. clean backgrounds. <laughs> right. I don't want porta potties in them. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is. I, mean, I remember that, right? And that Fullerton <laughs> game, we're like, oh man, the porta potties are right behind them. <laughs> Who put the porta potties <laughs> <Right>. here? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. After a while, like I say, it becomes almost like muscle memory, or it's in your mind and it's very clear and you can pretty much analyze the situation in a very short time and then know where the light is, where the action is, and what to look for, right? Yeah. So it just so happens that's where I'm at with my life. Like, I go out and I take stuff, and intentionally or not, people are like, wow, uh, that's, like, too beautiful from war, yeah. right? And I think that, like, sometimes that's where I've kind of questioned myself, that I make the shit look too good, when it should be actually looking very horrible. Right. Right. How is it that you've been in absolute major conflicts, but you're in downtown LA and you take a round, a rubber bullet round off of a camera. Right. But somehow your little skinny ass doesn't get clipped on a curb in the middle of Fallujah, but right. you took a rubber round in downtown LA. Right. How, you, how lucky and unlucky is that? You just never know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, I was interviewed by NPR a few months ago about the whole thing at Echo Park when the cops came in and cleared out the homeless. And they, you know, detained a couple of reporters and some TV guys. And I'm like, I am just watching out all the time for my own shit. I'm sorry, but if that comes across as very self-centered. Yeah, you have right, to watch. Yeah. You have to watch yourself, first of all, because if you're hurt down on the ground or missing an eye or something, you're not going to be taking photos, right? Even getting pepper sprayed, you're going to be out of commission for about like an hour or two. Right. right. And what good are you at that right. point? And who's right. going to care for you? Right. And then you can become a victim because someone just starts stripping you of all your gear because right. you got your eyes covered. Right. And they're like, oh, nice 70 to 200. Right. <laughs> you don't need to be picked clean. Right. And you have to be very careful about this stuff. And, 
again, maybe it was a PTSD or maybe it's just from this job that like I am like hyper aware in so many cases. I'm just like checking everything out around me. Right? No, it's it's the experiences you've had that I make you so, aware. Right? Sure. Right. I mean, it has to. What does it still mean for you every morning to know you got a job where you can pick up a camera? I, you know what? I think that like, um, I don't know, in all its ups and downs and stuff, there was always a purpose to this work, right? And the purpose was like trying to help people understand issues, events, people. Um, that's what I try to stick to, to this time. And it's been a great experience. I've learned so much in my life that like, some of it's so obscure, you would even wonder why I remember it. But it's been such a well-rounded, rewarding experience. I've made great friends. Um, I've been able to go to so many places that, like, I would never go. And I just try to tell myself, oh, and every time I speak in front of a crowd of students everybody you know everybody in that audience would just love to have your job right right and then at the same time on a first amendment thing about it it's like yeah sure people are now like saying whatever they want on social media but man i've been kind of um, lucky to have this responsibility of trying to make sure that like stuff kind of works because people understand the way it works so that's where i keep my head at now is it's like it's still a very useful job maybe fewer people are paying attention but the information that i try to put out there i hope it's useful to you and like i said i wish my son would have the opportunity to do something like this because it's been a very rewarding and wonderful career right I but think. you're giving back. You've you've gone back to where your family has a school, and you're right. you've had been doing workshops since 2006 or seven. Uh, 2013 to 2016, I had two a year, so okay. six total. But then I took a break, and then I was ready to start it up again, and then the pandemic happened. So, how much days. fun is that? Was was that for you? To go it's, back it's home. A, and... It's a lot of fun, actually, because, you know, I'm still very close to the place. We have family ties there with uh, the school, and I still have childhood friends there, although the city is much, much louder, larger than it used to be. But in teaching there, again, I, I explained to you earlier, it's Foundation University. It was founded by my grandfather 73 years ago. And it was always about uh, 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 the, the kids that didn't, come from families with a lot of land or money or power and when i taught there um i opened it up to anybody in the community that wanted to come and then i had some scholarship students from the school but some students from the school and some people from the community actually went from there to either start their own little wedding business or they got a job with like usaid documenting some of the projects they were doing there or stringing for the wires. One guy was stringing for the LA Times for a while. So this is what I want to see. Again, I, it's 
it's it's very hard to be a photojournalist or even a photographer now because as we spoke earlier, everyone's a photographer now. Right. It doesn't take a lot of special equipment anymore, special skill. There's no there's no costs in acquiring the equipment, processing the film or what have you. But I um, I feel really rewarded when people find jobs as photographers or videographers. And especially if they had participated with me and I was able to impart some knowledge to them. So, yeah, I feel good about that. I, I would it's like great. to do it's that It's beautiful more. stuff. Yeah, the place where I'm from in the Philippines is very picturesque. And uh, the people don't mind if you take their photo. They just don't mind. That's nice. Right. You just tell them, hey, I'm taking photos here. You guys mind if you're in it? And everybody's like, that's cool. That's cool, man. Right. right. <laughs> I'm just it's happy. Like, right. So I think it would be a good place to hold uh, future workshops. But like I say, we were talking earlier, I might start teaching on iPhone. And I know this is sacrilege to like photographers and photojournalists. But in a place like the Philippines, nobody's going to be buying a $10,000 worth of cameras, right. right, or whatever, uh, mirrorless, one of those, no one's, uh, few, no. few, few people can afford that. If they have a phone, they've got a camera. Right, and I mean, even in the United States, I don't see a lot of, like, my non-professional friends, like, they're camera people, but they're not laying laying it out, like right. a house payment for a lens, right, or right. whatever it costs now. And I think that that's where you're going to reach, like, a lot of people, is yeah. if you teach by phone. And then I, I, a friend of mine there, I can't remember the brand, it's a Chinese brand, but, it, you know, it's 300 bucks, it has 120 meg files. Wow. Right, unbelievable. And like I say, I think well, there's going to still be need for people that have skills with, uh, with cameras. But I think if you're going to reach the masses, you better start teaching on iPhone. Yeah. And when I was in the Philippines recently, I was shooting with an iPhone 12, and I was a little bit amazed about like how good the photos are, right? Like, yeah. Uh, it's I, come a long it way, It's come baby. a long way. It's just between, like, I, I had an 8 previously, and that was a terrible camera as far as I'm concerned, but the 12 is pretty good, and I understand the 13s are really, really, really good, right? Right. And as we spoke before, before we got on air here on tape, is you just look like some normal schmo. Right. Off on the side, taking photos, and no one's going to say boo to you about anything, right? And I learned that at the last Coachella, or the next to last Coachella I covered, it was with Beyonce. And, you know, Reuters, I think, had made her look bad. Oh, with the right. Super Bowl the photos. Super Bowl. She looked like a right. giant. Yeah. Right. She looked like. It like, was awkward. It was all her body was just kind of in the wrong. It just, it happens, right? I guess. I mean, but if I was the editor, I'd be like, hey, come on, man. It's Queen Bee. Does she yeah. really need to, like, look this bad? Maybe no, you don't you, like. You I mean, I'm not the biggest one. fan either, right? But it's like, I would not make her look as bad as that. That was yeah. pretty bad. Yeah. So she closed off the pit for her show, right? And so I had to wade through this deep, deep crowd to get, like, close enough to shoot it with a 400, right? Oh. Yeah, because it's like 100,000 people. It's yeah. like the last show of the night. Everyone is there, right? And the worst part was getting out, 
because I wasn't going to stay there for like the entire no. whatever 90 minutes set or hour set. And so I had to get out and it's so tight in there. It's almost impossible to get out and people are getting angry because you're like wading through the sardine can. <laughs> and you're going the wrong way. Right, going the wrong way Excuse with this me, big old me. bulky Excuse lens like <laughs> hitting people on the head. I mean, they just want to kill you. And they're right? all stoned and they just want to see her. Right. But meanwhile, like while I'm standing there taking photos or and taking, you know, looking around the crowd, everyone's shooting it on their iPhone, right? Because you're the dude with the 4028 or whatever you got. You're the enemy. Like, right. oh, you're the one that made me look bad at the Super Bowl, right? right? And it's like, no, it wasn't me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, sorry. If, yeah, I, I mean, as soon as somebody installs a decent one to 400. On a phone, I just might be there. I might be like, this is it, man. This is the perfect thing. A decent one under the phone. And it would have like a, what would a stabilizers on yeah. it. So you could be waving it around and you'd still get like the mole on someone's face, right? The pores on his nose. Well, if, if Tim Cook is listening to this podcast and that's what Lewis needs, he needs a 100 or 400 on his iPhone. Well, I'm worried about all the camera people. I don't know if they realize that, like, yeah, the camera, the phone people are not going to stop. No. No. Right? And even if it goes up to, a, what, 1500 bucks, that's still a lot cheaper than a new Canon, one of those mirrorless cameras, right? right? $6,000. So maybe they listen, too, and like, hey, can we have, like, something? Can we get a break here? We've been, like, supporting you guys for decades. And it just keeps getting more and more expensive, right? It's almost like, hmm. Uh, like and I say, and, and the worst part is, like I say, you show up with any kind of long lens anywhere, and people are going to be staring at you pretty much the whole time. Yeah, right? they just want to know. So, yeah. And yeah, it's not necessarily like malicious or anything. They're just like, hey, what's that guy doing? Yeah. Is there a celebrity around here? <laughs> There's got to be somebody important. <laughs> right. Because right. you've got a real camera. Right. It's got to be important. If you weren't taking pictures, what would you be doing? Uh, I think I'd be a teacher. Yeah. Honestly, I come from a family of educators, and that's what I plan on doing just, when I just, retire. Just fit in. I think so, and I like teaching people. Right. Yeah. Like I taught recently at El Camino College, and I had a lot of fun. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Yeah. The only problem was that, like. Um, I enjoyed it with the kids that stuck with it, that were serious about it. But it was a little disheartening that, like, two or three weeks in the course, like, half of the kids weren't showing up anymore. Yeah. Right? And I think it was because they thought, oh, it's photography. It's going to be an easy A. And it's like, no, it's not going to be an easy we're A. We're working to make right. pictures. <laughs> and all of a sudden, half of them, like, don't even show up. Damn Right? Kids. And that, that, to me, was, like, very frustrating. And I had a colleague come... And she told me, man, you should be, uh, you know, I believe in, in community colleges. My mom spent a good part of her career at San Francisco City College. But sometimes, right, like you get to a certain knowledge level and you would want to be teaching kids or young people, like I said, that were like involved in the workshop, mm -hmm. that want to do this, that aren't doing this because it's a stepping stone to a four-year college or whatever. Right, right. So, yeah, and there's good knowledge there to part on those kids. Right, a lot. Jesus. I mean, even if they're shooting by phones, right? It comes down to, like, 
knowing the lining, knowing the composition, anticipating yeah. the moments. Right. These are all things that you hone over a long time. And it's easily transferable to like, here's how you shoot with a phone. Because you're following the same basic concept. Yeah, those principles are still in line right. that you need them. Right, and if it's already muscle memory, like we talked about, and you familiarize yourself with a phone that you can like take it out in 0.5 seconds and have it ready to go, then you're good. You're ready right? to go. Right. So. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. Oh. I'm going to tell you, though, right now, you are not a photographer. You are a master storyteller. Mm. I've always appreciated that about your photography that it just tells unbelievable stories. Oh, thank you very much. I, like I say, I feel uncomfortable when people tell me stuff like that. I, I just, well, it, I'm just it, kind okay. of a modest I, I, guy I, I, sometimes. That's okay. Right? You could be modest. I'd rather tell you now than have to write it in your obituary. I'm telling you right now, you're a wonderful man. You're a great human being and you take unbelievable fucking photos. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Louis Cinco. If you enjoyed the episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember to follow the Jessica Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows on the website at jessicaconversation.com. Thank you for listening.